0: Now then, with a view to the help of God, let's um, turn for our text to the letter to the Hebrews and the great chapter of faith, which is chapter 11. the verse that speaks about the faith of Moses' mother and father, which is verse 23. Hebrews 11, verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents, because they saw he was a beautiful child, And they were not afraid of the king's command. So by faith, Moses was hidden for three months by his parents. Because they were not afraid of the king's command. And also because they saw that he was a beautiful child. Now usually of course when a, a woman... Uh, conceives and as a child it's a reason for rejoicing and of course as we'll see it will be the case here too in connection with Moses' mother but it's only fair to say that it didn't look like a reason for rejoicing at the time and the reason for that is because she falls pregnant when a woman would not really want to fall pregnant that's in the middle of a persecution which had now risen to the point of being a genocide and it was extremely dangerous to keep a child but the Bible tells us that this woman uh, Jochebed and her husband Amram acted in faith And therefore they took the decision to keep the child and not to inform the authorities about the birth of the child but to hide the child, praying for God to protect and to keep the child and indeed the rest of the family, Aaron the older brother and Miriam the older sister. Now It's by faith they did this. They didn't just do it on a whim or in a kind of blind hope, but they did it spiritually and intelligently. It was a response to what they believed with all their heart God wanted them to do. And this act of faith is so great and it sets such an example that it's recorded for us in the great chapter of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11. And of course, it leads to the birth of Moses, who is a colossus in Israel and indeed in the church of God through the ages. He was the redeemer or the deliverer used to bring Israel out of Egypt, and he sets in motion really all the events that are recorded in the book of Exodus and indeed. Beyond. Now, with God's help, I would like to um, do a fairly close study of the book of Exodus with you, as the Lord so leads us. And I think it's fitting and right that we begin by noting Moses' parents. And it's important to note them because it's easy to overlook them. And one of the reasons it's easy to overlook them is to make the casual assumption that verse 23 is about Moses, when it actually isn't. There are three statements made involving faith and connected to Moses. We know verse 27 very well that by faith Moses forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. We also know verse 24 very well, which tells us that by faith Moses, when he came of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing instead to suffer affliction with God's people rather than enjoy the pleasures of Egypt just for a little time. And because verse 23 begins with the words, by faith Moses, we think it has something to do with Moses' faith. But it has nothing to do with Moses' faith at all. Moses is absolutely passive in verse 23. He does nothing. It is his parents who do something. It is his parents who believe. Read the verse again. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden. He didn't hide himself. By faith he was hidden three months by his parents. Why? One, they saw he was a beautiful child. That expression means far more than we might think it means. We'll see that tonight, God willing. So they hid him because he saw he was a beautiful child and because they were not afraid of the command of the king. So our attention is drawn to the faith Of Moses' parents. Now I want to look with you at their faith, and as we do so, we'll get an understanding of the opening of the book of Exodus itself to set the scene for a closer study of it. Now Moses' parents were born and they lived in Egypt as the children of Jewish settlers there. And both of them, Amram and Jochaped, saw a huge change in their lives. Just like the Jews saw in Germany in the 1930s. Uh, Many of the Jews at the beginning of the 1930s were prosperous and uh, they were happy and content. Within a space of, of course, ten years that have changed completely. They moved from prosperity to poverty and from comfort to suffering. These changes, friends, can come very quickly amongst peoples and in nations. And even these days, some people are at last waking up to understand that the trajectory of world history isn't just going like that, as though People are getting better and better and better off all the time, and getting more and more comfortable and more and more healthy. These things come in peaks and troughs. And I suppose there's a generation rising now that thinks well, it's only previous generations that were poor, it's only previous generations that were hungry, it's only previous generations that went to war. We've grown out of poverty, and we've grown out of war. And we've grown out of hunger, not so. We don't even grow, we don't even rest secure in being a democracy for the rest of our lives either. After all, Hitler himself was elected. People forget that. The fact of the matter is, friends, that if God so wills it, all these things can be taken off this and stripped in a twinkling of an eye. And and God is giving us reminders in recent days that these things can be so. They haven't happened quite yet, but we see enough if we have eyes to see to remind us that God is in control and can quickly change our prosperity into adversity. happened to the Jews in Germany and it certainly happened to Israel in Egypt. Now when Israel first went down to Egypt as a people, in Jacob's day, they were treated well there, and they were treated well because of Joseph, who went down there first, and most of you know how God used Joseph and blessed him, and he took Joseph to prominence at a time that saved the Egyptian nation from seven years of famine. Pharaoh recognised that the power of God was in Joseph and he took him to his right-hand position and left the administration and the economy of Egypt absolutely in Joseph's hands. And because of how good Joseph had been for him, the whole family of Israel were invited to come from Canaan into the land of Egypt. Now, God's hand was in that. God had a purpose in that, uh, which we'll see just a little later on. But they settled as shepherds in the land of Goshen. God prospered them greatly, and they multiplied greatly in the land of Goshen. But then, you may have noticed in our reading in Exodus 1 and in verse 8, we suddenly read that a new king arose who did not know Joseph. It doesn't simply say that another king came because Pharaohs came and went, but a new king, new and kind, a new kind of king who didn't know Joseph. In other words, he didn't care for Joseph, he didn't care for Joseph's legacy, and didn't care for the way in which Joseph's legacy had changed Egypt as far as they were concerned. That takes us to the famous transition in Egypt from the 17th dynasty to the 18th dynasty which was a fiercely nationalistic dynasty and began a program of getting rid of foreigners out of Egypt blaming foreigners for everything that had ever gone wrong in Egypt and especially targeting their resources against Israel who had settled in the land of Goshen. And Pharaoh says, who knows, that the more resourceful they become, the more numerous they become, the more likely they are to take over or to ally themselves with another nation who might wish to take us over. And so, just in a moment of time, the official policy of the Egyptian nation changed from being one of encouragement and tolerance to being one of persecution and eventually genocide. And with that, their focus obviously fell upon the Lord's people as the target of their persecution. And you know how these things begin. First of all, small acts of discrimination that you would hardly notice. They would hardly make the newspaper today if you were living in Egypt. But then it eventually grew. Their wealth became more taxed eventually finally confiscated. Their labor came to be forced labor and eventually came to be slave labor. Finally, Pharaoh felt comfortable enough simply because there wasn't enough opposition amongst the people in Egypt to what was happening. He felt comfortable enough to proceed with genocide. Two stages in that. First of all, he works through the midwives to keep it all low-key. He says to them, Every time a male child is born, kill it. A female child, you can let live. This doesn't work. In spite of that command, the children of Israel still grow and they multiply. And we're told they multiply because the, the Hebrew midwives were not obedient to the king's command. Why weren't they obedient to the king's command? Because they were obedient to the Lord of Lords and the king of kings' command. They must obey God rather than men. And they made their excuse. But they delivered the boys. And they kept them alive. Pharaoh sees the population of Israel grow and not shrink. And so again he feels free to go further with the genocide. He now gives a universal command in Egypt. That it's lawful for anyone to kill a Hebrew male child alive. Again, there wasn't enough resistance. There wasn't enough opposition. And so he was free to do this. And every male child could be cast by anybody into the river Nile. Now this command, friends, in connection with the male seed, is important, spiritually important. Why was it just the boys that were killed? Well, you could say, well, that's just to do with the culture and the values. Because you could always assimilate the daughters into society. But you can't do the same with the sons, so you kill them. Well, that's one explanation. But there's a deeper explanation. And it's an explanation that leads us to the real reason for the persecution. And if you want to know what the persecution is really about, you've just got to look at Pharaoh himself. Look at the scepter that he carries in his hand. Look at the headdress that he wears on his head. On his headdress there's a hissing cobra ready to strike. And the same hissing cobra is on his scepter. The symbol of his rule and of his authority. Because it is the power of the serpent that he exercises. It is the God of this world who is really on Pharaoh's throne. The prince of the power of the air. And the reason that most of the energy in Egypt is being used against Israel is because they are the people of God. They are the visible church of God. They are the light of this world. They are his people upon the earth. They are the means by which God was going to bless the world and bring the gospel to a dark and fallen world. And therefore it is Satan's artillery that Pharaoh is using. The real opposition is from the power of darkness. Which of course. You know as a Christian is against yourself. The serpent hisses against you. And he wants to harm you. To hurt you. Or as the Lord says to kill you. And to destroy you. And that. Is what is at work. In Egypt. The real persecutor. Is Satan himself. Because he hates the people of God. Everywhere. Everywhere and in every generation and the reason he targets the male seed is not simply to eliminate the people but to kill the Messiah it's the Messiah that mustn't be born it's the Messiah that mustn't be allowed to come into this world it's the Messiah that must be cast into the Nile now significantly Israel worshipped the Nile it was the source of their life What would Egypt be without the Nile? A desert like the Sahara. It's that water of life that makes the land fertile and fruitful. And they worshipped it. As we all do uh, by nature, we worship God's gifts instead of worshipping God himself. We find different ways of doing it. We always worship the gifts God has given us rather than the God who gave those gifts. It's what lies at the heart of our idolatry. They worshipped the Nile. And every male child being cast one after the other into the Nile was a way of saying that evil was triumphing, and evil was prevailing, and the Messiah would die when he had hardly been born. Now there's a very vivid picture of that in Revelation chapter 12 where there's a picture of the church as a woman ready to give birth and we're told that the dragon, that great serpent stood before the woman when she was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. There's a very Powerful illustration and example of that in King Herod when the saviour was born before he was two years of age King Herod empowered by the same prince of the power of the air animated by the same god of this world the dragon himself gives an edict that every child under two years of age in Bethlehem was to be put to death. What is that? But the dragon waiting at the feet of the woman to devour the child as soon as it is born. But to rewind one and a half thousand years you have exactly the same thing happening here. The dragon is at the woman's feet waiting for the birth of a child which she will, which she will devour swallowed by the mouth of the river Nile. Now let me just say a few words about the darkness that the people of God were in and the deliverance that they got out of it. I I know that our focus is going to be on Amram and Jochebed but this is a wider study of the book of Exodus and we should understand something about this bondage and why the need to be delivered from it. Amram and Jochebed grew up when things were quite well, but by the time they had got married, this was their situation. Why? Why are God's people in this mess in Egypt? Why have they reached the point where they're knee-deep in mud, making mud bricks, quotas that are impossible to keep, with the lash of whip-masters on their back? Why is it that a proud people proud in the right way, proud of their God, proud of their heritage, who had been so successful in Egypt, why do they find themselves like this? These questions are always important to ask. Sometimes the answer isn't easy to find. Why was I like that and why am I now like this? Why was the church like that? Why is the church now like this? Why was the nation like that? Why is it now like this? Why? Why? Do we know? Well, yes, we do know. The Psalms tell us. Other parts of the Bible tells us. The reason lay in the worldliness of the church. Instead of witnessing to Egypt as a people apart in Goshen, they gradually began to imitate Egypt, to become like Egypt as though they were the same. Perhaps, first of all, the motive is, well, the more like them we can show ourselves to be, the more they will desire to become like us. That's not, never has been, never will be the way it works. Do you understand that? That's not, never has been, never will be the way it works. You cannot attract a person of the world into the church by trying to act as a person of the world yourself, doesn't do. The best it does is create a false disciple who will inevitably fall away. But the devil still tells you that that's the best way to go about it. Never was, isn't, and never will be. And little by little, the religion of Egypt started to affect their own religion. And their own ways of worship. It was a very vivid, sensuous way of worship that they had, relying very much on the visual and on the tangible. And you can see how much it affected Israel by just following them through the Red Sea into the wilderness. When Moses is a little longer in coming back than they should have been, they want a representation of God. And they make a golden calf. Why? Because they had become familiar with that. That's how other people worshipped. They, they took the God, the invisible God, and made him visible. And they said, well, let us make the true God visible. And they made a golden calf to worship. That tells you all you need to know about how much like Egypt they had become. In their thoughts and in their ways. And all you do today is look around you and you see the church doing exactly the same thing. How can we attract the world? How can we get the world into our door? How can we get the world to listen to our message? The answer? By using worldly methods of presentation. And worldly methods of attraction. It's the easiest thing in the world to get people across your church door. See, It's absolutely easy. You could fill your church with a thousand people if you give them what they want. Of course you can. It's not difficult. But that is never the way to bring a person from darkness to life. Light. It's never the way to bring a person from bondage to sin into the liberty of the people of God. Never the way. Israel became worldly. They began to live lives that were wealth orientated, career orientated, living for popularity and acceptance. Acceptance by the Egyptians was everything. What did the Egyptians think of what we do? What do, you, do the Egyptians think of how we worship? What do the Egyptians think of our appearance and our culture? That brought them very low, as the psalmist said. And it brought chastisement upon their sins. Another reason for this bondage in Egypt and the drawn-out nature of the bondage in Egypt, had little to do with Israel. In fact, it had to do with the land of Canaan, where they had come from. They were to be absent from that land for nearly 400 years. Why? Well, because as God said to Abraham, Israel wouldn't go back there until their cup of iniquity was full until God was ready to judge them and to punish them. Sometimes we don't know uh, what God is doing because the reasons lie out of view and they have to do with other people besides ourselves. We may be in a certain situation and we are wondering why we are in this certain situation and it has to do with somebody else. That doesn't mean it has nothing to do with you. Because it always does. But it also has something to do with somebody else. The fact of the matter is that for, it, the land of Canaan had had the witness of Abraham. It had had the witness of Isaac. And it had had the witness of Jacob for many, many years. And they didn't respond and they didn't turn. So God took that holy family out and placed them in Egypt. And he left the land of Canaan. But he left them for well nigh 400 years in grace and in mercy. 40 times 10. Patience. Perfect patience. A a lengthened out probation period to see if they would change. And Israel only came back when God was finished with the Canaanites. And God was giving them no more opportunity. You know, it's an amazing thing to behold how how long-suffering... God is with people, how many chances and opportunities he gives, and never mind people, you, how many opportunities he gives yourself, opportunities to change, to respond and to repent, but the time will come when God will bear with these things no longer, his patience is not infinite, his long-suffering is not inexhaustible, judgment would come. But Israel had to stay in Egypt until the cup of iniquity was full. Is your own cup of iniquity filling? I would tremble to think that that was true of yourself today, that the reason things are still okay with you is because your cup of iniquity is not yet full. But when it is full, the Lord will indeed intervene and judge. But still, why was the darkness so great? Why was their bondage so deep and why did it lengthen out so much? It's it's one thing to say that it has to do with the Canaanites, but yes, but it still must mean something for the church itself. Well, absolutely it does. The fact of the matter is that when the world really gets a hold of your heart, When idolatry gets back in it's not so easy to shake it off. It's not so easy to go back to what you once were to repent and to do the first works to be a living, zealous, lively Christian like you used to be in your youth. For that to happen you've got to understand your present condition and you've got to understand the spiritual reasons why you've come so low and you've got to recognize your need to pray and to get hold of God to make a real change in yourself and a real change in your home, in your marriage, in your family even in your congregation when worldliness comes in friend we're all talk and little prayer. But affliction awakens prayer. Read Psalm 107. And notice the cycle. It's a cycle that's repeated, I think, five times. Of God bringing affliction into the lives of his backslidden people to get them to do what? What is it that they do? What are the words that are used all the time? Then they cried. To the Lord. They cried to the Lord. And it seems to be that it's only affliction that brings a chastised, backslidden people to that place. Or if, if you are unconverted and have never been a Christian, it's more than likely that it's affliction that will bring you to that place too. And maybe there is something slowly coming into your own life that is afflicting and uncomfortable. The first thing I want you to do in response to that is to turn to God in connection with it. Recognize that he permits affliction. He allows it into your portion. And I pray that you will come to the place where you will know that only God can ease that affliction. And help you in it and help you through it. But affliction awakens prayer for ourselves and for others. course this is also true that God very often allows the situation to get very bad and to go very dark so that we understand it to be beyond our power therefore we pray it's only when we know it's beyond our power that we pray and then when God intervenes the excellency of the glory of that intervention and deliverance will be of God and not of man. Israel would never look back and say, or should never look back and say, well, we got out of Egypt by our resourcefulness and our ingenuity. Nor they'll say that they were brought to a place where they needed God to get them out of Egypt and God took them out by his resourcefulness and by his ingenuity. Anything short of prayer and the power of God would be glory to me, glory to you. But in that salvation wrought by Thee, Christ's glory is made great. And He allows that darkness to be quite thick in your house and quite thick in your life to get you to pray. And then His intervention comes, which always leads to worship. It always leads to worship. Now, when men are busy plotting the church's downfall and prophesying her imminent extinction, God is preparing for her revival. You should always remember that. When people are plotting and prophesying her extinction, God is preparing for her revival. And unknown to most people, perhaps even in Amongst the children of Israel themselves, the time of deliverance was drawing near. I'm saying unknown to most people because I wouldn't say it was unknown to everybody. In, in the darkest times in the church's life, God, God always has his remnant. He's got, he's got his remnant. And when God is going to revive and awaken his people, he uses his remnant. There are people who have kept their clothes clean. They've walked with the Lord. They've sought the Lord. Even if they've lost something of their own edge. But God will awaken them. And God will pour upon them a special portion of a prayer of grace and supplication. Which will be a means of awakening the whole church. He will use a few to bless the many. He has always worked that way. And amongst these slaves who are working there in Egypt, there was an earnest group who who had their eyes set upon God, even when they were knee-deep in the mud. And not only were they waiting for God to work while they were doing the impossible, But they knew that the time was drawing near for God to work. And it's not just that they felt it in their spirits. Which you can feel such a thing in your spirit. But they knew it from the word of God itself. To go back nearly 400 years. God had said to Abraham. Your descendants will be strangers in a land not theirs. And they shall be afflicted. But in the fourth generation they will return. That's the word of God, and the word of God had been passed down, and they knew that word of God, and those believers kept that word of God, even though this was now the generation that was being put to death. Strange, isn't it? How um, you often find this how before God's promise is fulfilled. Immediately before it, it looks most unlikely. You always find that. You'll even find that in your personal Christian life. Before something God has said will come to pass, just immediately before it, it looks most unlikely. It's the fourth generation that are being thrown into the Nile. How ridiculous it seems to be to hang on to words that were spoken. Hundreds of years ago. Unless you believe Abraham's God. Unless you're a friend of Abraham's God. Unless you love Abraham's God. In which case you will cleave to his word. The second promise they had came almost in the form of a kind of sacrament. Joseph's bones. When he was dying in Egypt he said... (coughs) Don't bury me here, he said, but keep my bones and bury me in Israel when you go back to the promised land. And so he wasn't buried. He was placed in a sarcophagus, as the Egyptians often did. He was mummified. His body was preserved and it was sealed in the sarcophagus. And there it was as something that could be touched or handled. And seen. And as Israel's situation became more and more degraded. And more and more desperate. They could still look at the bones. They could still hear the prophet. They could still remember the prophet's words. You will carry me from here. And bury me in the land of promise. We too have our words and we have our sacraments. In our darkest days and in our darkest hours, to remind us that whatever God has said will come to pass. It'll come to pass. You've got to hang on, to believe, and to pray because it will come to pass. And the lower they've got, the more they begin to pray. Zion begins to travail, the remnant first. When the remnant starts, the whole church starts. One of the reasons the whole church is not repenting is because the remnant herself is still not awake enough. Do you belong to this remnant? On your knees, all of us in our hearts call upon the name of the Lord. Zion will begin to labor. And that's what takes us to the house of Amram and Jochebed, a house more like a mud hut. They themselves are third-generation settlers. She already has two children. The oldest is a girl called Miriam, and the next is a three-year-old boy called Aaron. And when she's expecting her next child, the edict is passed. It's enough to turn anyone's joy to sorrow. After all, the Savior spoke of, days of tribulation that were going to come in Jerusalem when the blessed wombs are those that never bore and the blessed breasts are those that never suckled. In other words, he's saying the situation will be so hard in that city that you'll be glad you don't have a child. You'll be glad you don't have a child. In fact, it's not just enough to turn joy into sorrow. You would say it's almost enough to turn faith into to unbelief i mentioned a minute ago how situations get really really bad before god's word comes to pass well well here's a classic case why fall pregnant no why fall pregnant now when it's so dangerous to have a child god's ways are often so so mysterious i'm sure She probably said sometimes why was I not pregnant earlier than this when my child could at least live even if he would live as a slave or or why just not at all. Pregnancy can bring many questions into especially a woman's life. Um, Maybe you had a child yourself when you never expected to have one. Perhaps your daughter had a child perhaps out of marriage or your granddaughter and your first response naturally so is to say why this why Why has this happened well friends that's never of course in itself a good thing can't be at the same time we have to learn by faith to leave things like that with God if God permits it let's see what faith and prayer will make of it. That's the best way to look at it. If God permits it, let's see what faith and prayer will make of it. There are terrible things sometimes in the lives of some believers. David never thought a day would come when he would have a child through the wife of a man whom he respected in his own army well it brought grief all right but let's see what faith and prayer will make of it well it brought us the books of Ecclesiastes and of Proverbs and of the Song of Solomon for one they were written by the child of that union so like I say let's see what faith and prayer will make of it. But she does need guidance. She's got two options. One is to obey the edict and report the child and have it killed. The Bible seems to indicate that many of the children of Israel did that. When Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is is giving his famous sermon or address He says, when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied, till another king arose who didn't know Joseph. This is Act 7. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. Now, exposing the baby. It's just an expression to convey putting them into the mouth of the Nile, leaving them there. And the way it's worded certainly conveys to me not only that that's what he was doing, but what they were doing themselves. That's how it reads. He oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. But at this time... Moses was born. If they did do that, which I think they did, the Bible I think clearly says that it did, then shows us the, the awfulness of the situation. Some people think that that decree was short lived because there wasn't enough public will behind it. That may well be. And it is a fact that later when Israel left, Egypt they're left with the goodwill of many other people. But that was one option, which is being an accessory to murder is it not? It's being accessory to murder. Many people choose elimination or termination for children today, for reasons much less than this. Oh, I believe my child should be happy yeah well one thing's sure it's not going to be happy when it doesn't exist the second option is to hide the child but if the child's found that's probably not just death for the child it's probably death for Miriam death for Aaron death for Aaron for Amram and death for Jochebed what do you do? text tells us what they did they hid him and the text tells us that they hid him by faith they didn't hide him because they thought it was the best option they didn't hide him because they thought they would take a chance they hid him by faith why? because they weren't afraid of the king's command and because they saw that he was a beautiful child that doesn't mean that they oohed and ad over their own child like every parent does. It means something far more than that. What it means we'll see tonight. Let us pray. Eternal God, we pray to lay hold for your purposes down through the years. That from age to age your faithfulness endures. Help us to see the rise and fall of kingdoms, but the rise and the fall and the rise again of your church. Enable us to recognize that your dealings with your people are always in mercy and grace, and that their pains and their afflictions are but chastisements to bring them to a better place. O Lord, help us to have the faith of Jochebed and of Amram, Grant us the faith to recognize that you are God and that your purpose will come to pass in our lives too. There are things that come our way and we would wish that they had not or that they had come another time. Things that maybe bring darkness or even a measure of shame but help us to wait patiently upon the Lord and to still be doing good. Until you show us your own purpose in these things. Help us to prepare prayerfully for the evening. In the Saviour's precious name we pray. Amen. Let's uh, close our worship singing God's praise in Psalm 143. And the second version of the psalm. At verse 6. Well in verse 4 the psalmist describes how his spirit is so vexed and overwhelmed within. And his heart is sore perplexed and desolate. Yet he calls to mind what ancient days record. These are the records of what God's done in the past. And therefore he prays, as I'm sure Johobed and Amred prayed when they discovered pregnancy in the midst of genocide. Lo, I do stretch my hands, to thee my help alone, for thou well understands all my complaint and moan. My thirsting soul desires and longeth after thee as thirsty ground requires with rain refreshed to be. Lord, let my prayer prevail. To answer it make speed. For lo, my spirit doth fail. Hide not thy face in need. Lest I be like to those that do in darkness sit or him that downward goes into the dreadful pit. Because I trust in thee, O Lord Cause me to hear thy loving kindness free When morning doth appear Cause me to know the way Wherein my path should be For why, my soul on high I do lift up to thee These three stanzas, let's stand and sing them.
1: Oh, I do mm <laughs>